This morning, we're going to uh, be reading from 1 Samuel 2. Uh, we're going to start with verse 12 and then continue on with verses 22 to 31 and finally 34 to 35. Starting with verse 12 then. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors' family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all of the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors' family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever. But now the Lord declares, far be it from me. Those who honor me, I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house, so that no one in it will reach old age." And what happens to your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be a sign to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house, and they will minister before my anointed one always. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Bruce. If you have, I would encourage you, if you have a Bible open, to leave it open to chapter 2. This will be the main focus for us this morning. And as we begin, let, please join me in praying. Lord, often there are so many things that we experience in services of worship, being with all the people we are with right now. And so, Lord, even as in our minds and hearts we're processing all these lots of different small moments, 
I pray you would help us to be present to you this moment. That nothing we walked into this morning would hinder nor distract us from receiving what you have for us today. I pray by your spirit we would hear your word clearly, even in the midst of a, a, a chapter and text that, you know, it, you have to kind of look into the, the words and the sentences to see the good news. And I certainly pray that you would give us the strength and the focus this morning to see it and to receive it. For our worship truly matters to you. Our life with you truly matters because you deeply care for each person here. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be holy and pleasing to you. Amen. Amen. Last time we looked at the story of Samuel's birth. We looked at this prayer that if you had your Bible open, you would see it right here at the beginning of chapter two, Hannah's prayer. And it kind of leaves you on a little bit of a nail biter because what it does is it is talking about things that God has just done through Samuel being born, but also what he's about to do. And you can see that in verse nine at the very end. If you go back in chapter two, you'll see it. It says, it is not by strength that one prevails, those who oppose the Lord will be broken. The Most High will thunder from heaven. And this is what it says. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And there's this line here. It says, he will give strength to this king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Now, you might think, oh, so naturally the rest of the chapter goes into what that means. What does it mean for the king to be given strength or to be you know, exalted, the horn of his anointed. You might think chapter, the rest of chapter two does that. It doesn't. <laughs> what it does instead is it goes into judgment. We've already been introduced to this man, Eli, who's the priest of the temple at Shiloh. And it's talking about what's happening in this place with the priests, with the worship. And what we immediately learn is this is a place that has, as it says, no regard for the Lord. That means they don't know God. There are times in life when all of us have lived in some way apart from knowing God. Think about our world today and how it exists in a space of not knowing God. And I was thinking about this as I had the surprising gift yesterday. I wonder if anybody else did this. Christy and I have not necessarily been good at clearing out our garage where we parked our cars. But yesterday was more than just a plus one day. Yesterday was a warm day. And so we, we got out and we cleared out all the filth and muck in our garage, all of it. I mean, it, it, was, it was really packed in there. It had been a long time since we'd actually cleared out our garage. If you, I mean, this is, it was a mess. Our kids didn't really quite have the patience for it. But Christy's working on one part and I'm working on the other part and we're just scraping off the dirt that's caked onto the floor. And it took a while. I, it took a while to actually get it clear. And I just think, wow, this takes so much work to get over this. I wish I could skip this step. Just like I think many of you, if you are reading this as your reading plan, you're reading 1 Samuel and your reading plan, your Bible reading plan, you might be tempted to skip over this. All these different verses in chapter 2 about Eli's wicked sons and the prophecy against his house, you might be tempted to skip it. But then all that filth would just stay there if you think about it. It has to be dealt with completely. And God's grace for us today as we're reading 1 Samuel, and we're going to be in the book throughout different times this year, is, is to reveal to us exactly how far gone the people are that we're reading about, how far gone they actually are. 
which then helps us see sometimes for ourselves, how far gone am I? Am I really attentive to this life of worshiping with God, or am I way far away? Have I not dealt with the filth and the crud just stuck to the floor of my life? Have I not really dealt with this? Because it's just compounding and getting harder and harder to come out. And for the people of God, it's really important because we, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're called, just like the people we read, the Old Testament people in, the, in Israel, you're called to a distinct witness, a witness that's different than what the rest of the world has to offer, a, a witness that's true, genuine, and humble, and we are all messed up and imperfect, so our witnesses kind of gets messed up a little bit. <laughs> but yet God uses us. We're called to a distinct witness. And that witness is worship. So I don't, you might not have like an operating definition of worship. So I'll give you one this morning. So worship, if you, say this with me. This is participation time. Worship is rightly relating to God in word and deed through personal and communal participation. Worship is rightly relating to God and word and deed through personal and communal participation. So that's worship. It's not just what happens in the service. It's not just what happens on Sunday. It happens when you're at work or you're at home with your family or friends or you get cut off on the street or you're at the grocery store and someone gives you a side-eye glance. Worship is rightly, reflecting on who, rightly relating to who God is in that moment through what you do, what you say, whether you, what you do personally, but also you do it with the people you're with. A.W. Tozer has this quote, which has kind of been in my mind this week, which is, worship is no longer worship when it reflects the culture around us more than the Christ within us. The worship stops being worship when I start reflecting everything I see out there, everything I experience out there more than Christ who is inside of me. What God does in this chapter, and it's the reason it's so important because this is a time when the word of God is rare for Israel, and we probably feel that way sometimes today. God breaks his silence. He breaks his silence, and this is our main idea for this morning. He reminds us of what matters. He reminds us of how our worship matters, how we worship matters. And so our flow for today, because, you know, I want, us, I want you to give, I want to do a little bit of a roadmap so you know what we're doing with this section, is I want you to see how God reveals and restores the hearts of his people for worship. And I want to do three points, which is how he does this, how he actually reveals what's going on in people's hearts, how he actually restores people's hearts. And it's through three things, rejecting sin, nurturing signs of hope, and persisting in his promises. He's going to reject sin in this passage. It's a big part of what we're going to read this morning. He's also nurturing signs of hope. And he's persisting with his promises. The idea is like God is going to remain faithful through his promises. So the first one is God rejects sin. And it's, it's, it's actually longer than the other two, just so you know, because that's one of the main focuses going on in this passage. We're, we've already met Eli the priest, but we don't know anything about his sons, or not too many details about his sons. The first verse that was read for us, verse 12, tells us a lot of what we need to know. I already referenced it. Eli's sons were scoundrels. Can you say scoundrels? It makes me want to like squinch up my nose. Scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. 
Now, I've already referenced it. I'll say it again. Worship in Shiloh, this is this place where Samuel is growing up, where Eli and his sons are priests. It's a sham. It's a lie. All the worship happening in this place, it's a lie. And it's symbolic of the kind of worship happening throughout all over the land in this time. All over the land. The worship is a sham. It's the time of judges where everyone is just living apart from God. And I want to look at some of the ways that Eli and also his sons have led people into sin, led people into this kind of worship that's a lie, because it tells us what God's ultimately rejecting in this chapter. The first is this, that they are abusing their power. They are abusing their power. His sons, they're using their power, their influence, their means to usurp the worship practices that are happening in this people in this time for their own glory, and for their own pleasure. Their names are Phineas, and, I'm just, and also Hophni, which were read very well for us. Hophni and Phineas. And in this scene, and we don't really, we're not there, right? You can see images of it, but I decided I should just do the best I could to describe it, is that if you were worshiping to Shil- at Shiloh, you would come regularly throughout the year, or at least annually, you'd bring an animal that you wanted to sacrifice. And in doing it, you not only go through the ritual that would involve burnt, putting it on the altar and burning it, but also what, the, what Leviticus gives a provision for is that, oh, part of that meat that's being offered is not just burnt up for God. It's given after it's been burnt to the priests. Levit- Leviticus 7, if you're really looking for something to do this week, go check out Leviticus 7. It's, it's, a, it's a joy read. Um, but the idea is that God provides for the priests as part of their house. Now, what's happened is that the priests, Hophni and Phinehas, they've, take, they've hijacked the whole thing. They put their own rules in place for what's supposed to happen, and it only benefits them. Now, the thing that's added, it actually is in a section that, that was not read for us this morning because I thought I could explain it just fine, is they've decided that, no, a servant or a priest can go by when a sacrifice is happening and they have like a designated large fork. This is quite literally, it's not in Leviticus 7. It's added here. They added the idea that you could walk up, here's your fork, and I'm just going to just stick my fork in and just pull out whatever I want. Thank you very much. The idea is that, he, that the, the priests and the servants are taking whatever they want even before it gets to God. It'd be the equivalent of any of the offerings happened today, any of your gifts that you're given to the church or to the ministry of the church. It'd be the equivalent of me stepping in and saying, hold up a sec, let me take 35% of that, and oh, by the way, I need to use your car all this week, so I'll, I'll, I'll use that. Thank you very much. They're hijacking what is intended to be worship and focus on God for their own benefit. And not only that, the verses describe this. If you, were, if you have your Bible in verse 15, I will read two verses here, verse 15 and 16. But even before the fat was burned, so they're offering a burnt offering. The idea is you burn it and then you give it up to God and then what's left over is for the priests. Well, the priests aren't satisfied with that. They don't like burnt meat. I guess nobody really likes burnt food. But they've decided that they want to alter that, which is also not in Leviticus 7. Verse 15, but even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first, because that's what the the scriptures actually said, then take whatever you want. 
The servant would answer, no, hand it over, or if you don't, I'll take it by and by. So what is happening is when people actually say, I want to do what our holy scriptures say, I want to do this, they're being threatened with violence. They've altered the words and made it about themselves and for their own pleasure. Now, Eli is an older priest. He's an older priest. He has these sons that are out of control. And apparently he's just let them go and do everything that they wanted to do. It even refers to the idea that what they're doing, this kind of worship, is holding God's word and offering in contempt. So Eli finally rebukes his sons. He finally does. That's what's in this section that we're looking at this morning. He finally gets up the courage and rebukes them. And then we learn that it's not just all these bad worship practices that might not seem so significant to us, but they are twisting and distorting God's word but that they've been taking advantage of the women that are near the tent of meeting. It says that not only is all these things happening, but Eli calls them out on it because he's heard them about it. You've been sleeping with the women all around this, time, this place of worship. They're using their power for their own benefit. To, you know, meat is a very valuable thing. It's not just you know, sustenance for a day. It's very valuable. But then they're also taking advantage of people. And, you know, sleeping with, like sexually, they're sexually exploiting the women around the tent of meeting. And this is what is in Eli's rebuke. I'm reading from verse 23. So he said to them, why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons. The report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender, but if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? They have gone so far in going away from what God has wanted them to do. Just to sum this up, it's a complete refusal of social and sexual boundaries in worship. It's a complete refusal and rejection of what God has said is good. And it's exploiting the people attempting to worship. It's usurping. They're, they're putting themselves in place of, who God, uh, of God. And it's actually compromising the priestly office. One commentator I read this week said this, that Hophni and Phinehas had, been, had turned the tabernacle into a brothel, a place where sin was committed rather than it being confessed. And I think about this because... For myself as a pastor, I, I experience a great weight of being, you know, a person of authority in a church. But if you look around in the global church, especially over the past 20, 30 years, you can go back even further beyond that. You see so much failure of Christian leaders, of pastors, of leaders of companies and organizations that have great Christian witness. And all of this just kind of falls apart when there's an affair. When you start to see that, wow, this person has sexually assaulted a person. This person has made sexual advances at a person. This person has used their power and bullied everyone around them and created a toxic work environment. You know these stories, but they're real truths. And if you've experienced them firsthand, you know how painful they can be. But I think especially when it's in a place of worship, a context of worship, you're orienting, all, all of us this morning are orienting around, this is who God is and what he has for us. And we're offering our gifts and we're coming together in community. And then when you see this fallout of someone who's been given authority or status in the community, we understandably want to transmit it over to, oh, this whole thing is pointless. 
Is God really want us to worship all this way? And I personally, too, I mean, I've seen this in different churches, but I was a part of a church specifically who had a moral failure with its lead pastor. And in that moment, I experienced not just my own pain, but the pain of those around me. Where you start to realize that, wow, how devastating this is when the people who have been given status and authority abuse that trust, abuse that power. And I go into that to say that that is why God is rejecting this so strongly. It is so important that worship and how we worship is focused truly on what matters. Because it's devastating. It's devastating to any of you who've experienced that. It's been devastating for me personally. And so the next section of chapter 2, I'm at verse 27. It says this, that a prophet comes to the house of Eli. It's strange because you learn in the next chapter that God hasn't been speaking that much at this time. And then all of a sudden, God has something to say and there's a prophet. If God has something to say, he's going to call a prophet to speak. So we have this prophecy coming to Eli with an unnamed man of God. And this is what he says. Unnamed man of God. He says a word. This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestors and family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest and to go up to my altar and to burn incense and to wear enough ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestors all the food offerings presented by, my, by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that, that you scorn my sacrifice? Offering that I prescribed for my dwelling. The prophet is basically saying, this is what's going to come to your house. I'm going to cut your strength and then what we learn a few verses down is I'm going to cut off your family line. Your, your family line's done. The judgment for Eli, his sons, is that not only will his sons die on the same day, but they will not live a long life, nor will the people of his descendants. They will be allowed to exist, but they will certainly not thrive. And it's because of this judgment that they have gone so far away from the worship of God. And Eli, too, what's important to notice in this, these verses, if you want to read back with them this week, is that, you know, Eli's not judged for the sins of his sons. He's judged for his own sins. The reality is he's allowed them to do this. He's allowed them to do ministry among the people this way. And just by the, even just though he did, he rebuked them at one point right before this, he's allowed them to basically create a whole worship community style and culture that's based upon what they want and not what about God wants. And that's Eli's sin because it's his responsibility as their father, but also as the ultimate priest in this place. So God is rejecting this. The prophet comes, he sends a prophet to bring complete judgment to them and tells them exactly what's going to happen. And this is God rejecting his sin. So how does he reveal his heart? He says, enough. He has, says, enough with this. Okay, that was a long first point. The other two are not that long. And part of it is because the rest of the passages kind of blends in with this judgment. That God is building in mercy in all these different ways in this passage. Where he's, he's, there's a really, really bad thing happening with Eli and his sons. He, Eli rebukes them, and then he sends a prophet. But all throughout this passage, God is preparing us for grace. And I want you to see that. So in it, in part of it is through the, the contrast between what's happening in Samuel's family and what's happening in Eli's family. Because in last chapter, 
even reminds us that Eli gives a blessing to Hannah and she gives birth to Samuel and it doesn't stop there. That, that what we find is that Hannah and Elkanah, which is her husband, they start to have other children when they weren't able to have it before. And these are these signs of grace and hope that God's reminding us all throughout this chapter. And I have it on the screen just so you can see the pattern because I didn't know how else to show it. So the hope is you already see that Samuel's serving. While all this is happening, Samuel is serving. He says, the boy ministered before the Lord under the priest. While all this horribleness is happening. Then it gives us a note. You see a section there, verses 12 and 17. It's the sins in worship. It's where the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. It's that, it's that keeping with this distortion of worship. The next sign of hope is in verses 18 to 21. Hope. Samuel is serving. He not only began serving, but he continues to serve. And there's even a section here where Samuel, his family is blessed again. You know, they have three children at this point in time, not, not, not including Samuel. Then it tells us about the moral sins of the leaders, of, of Hophni, Phinehas, and their servants, Eli heard about everything his sons were doing all of, in all of Israel and how they slept with women who served in the entrance in the tent of meeting. The next sign is hope. It's, it's Samuel grows. He's growing. And it almost sounds like Jesus and Luke, if you listen to the language of being in the temple courts. The boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Then it goes back to the prophecy that I already talked about, the prophecy of sin. The time is coming when I will cut your strength and the strength of your priestly house. And then the last note, and it's already, it creeps into chapter 3, when Samuel's going to be called to prophetic ministry. The boy Samuel ministered before the Lord under Eli. It's all these echoes and signs. It's almost like a very difficult passage where there's all these horrible things happening. It's, it's beautifully written where you see these horrible things are happening, and yet, oh, God's still doing something. Horrible things are happening. No, God is actually nurturing and growing his next prophet. Oh, he sends a prophecy of judgment. Oh, but by the way, Samuel's winning favor with the people. And it got, it, it's a reminder that not only does God reject sin, but that he is nurturing hope in quiet places. Sometimes in your life, you might feel like, I'm just experiencing the evil. <laughs> I'm experiencing the loneliness. I'm experiencing the darkness. And you miss some, we miss some of these signs very easily of, no, God's still doing a good thing here. Okay, it doesn't look good, but who's this new person? It's this, silent, it's this silent, quiet nurturing of growth that's happening in ways that we can very easily miss. We don't always see. And if you're going to think about, how do I, okay, well, and we'll talk about it. How do I reject some of these things that happen here with these sons, these priests? But I also want you to think about, okay, how do I cultivate and nurture these signs of hope when I see them? Am I open to them? Am I looking for them? Am I listening for them? And you don't have to go too far, but to go back to the last chapter, to look at Hannah and to see how she and her humble witness just pours her heart out. We talked about that last week. She pours her heart out to God. If you give, I will give. She gives everything and receives mightily. God does want us to move past the fact that he blesses and continues to bless, even in the midst of evil and debauchery. The next, the next point I want to make is that how does God reveal and restore our hearts and worship? If we're, if we're going to worship the way God wants us to worship, we reject sin. We also nurture the quiet signs of hope. And then 
also we need to see, and this is what God's doing, and we need to trust him on this, that God persists in his promises. That God persists in his promises. It would actually be far more striking in a passage like this for God to not hold these people, this family, accountable for sin. It would actually be far more alarming because he doesn't matter. All these horrible acts that, that this family and these priests are doing, they're using their power to take advantage of all the people. God, don't you want to do something? Yes, he does. He holds them accountable to sin. If he doesn't, not only do they harm others, but you know, he dev- they're, they're devastating their family line. But at the end of the section, we start to see some language around a promise that God's going to do, a promise of another priest. So verse 35, if you're reading along, says this, I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish this priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. I need to make a comment here because I sometimes forget and I have to remind myself that the offices of the priesthood and the prophet are different. And so I find myself, I had to remember as I was reading 1 Samuel again that, you know, oh, 1 Samuel's going to be the next priest. He's serving in Eli's house. He's naturally going to be the next priest. That's not actually true. God's preparing him to be a prophet. It has a different calling. It's a different office. And so even this reference here, even though I know that Samuel's all over the place here, it's not actually a reference to Samuel. It's probably a reference to when David is king in 1 Kings, and there's another priestly line that takes the place of Eli's one. It's, the, it's Zadok is the name of the priest. I know that's a name you thought you would hear this morning. Um, but there's another priestly line. You can read about it in 1 Kings 2.35. But God is persisting in his promises. One, he holds people accountable for sin. He's in relationship with his people. And then two, the fact that he makes a promise here about a faithful priest coming tells us that he's preparing something. I'll tell you, 1 Kings 2.35, he completes his promise. And then also two, He's preparing his people for another prophet. He's used all these judges. If you, look, if you read the book of Judges, you see that, wow, God really needed to call some people to do some very difficult things. But he's specifically pre- preparing Samuel for a very difficult ministry, and he persists that he will make himself known. His word will go forward through his prophet. And so God makes good in his promises. God persists in his promises. All these prophecies that this unnamed prophet mentions comes to pass. And I'll kind of paraphrase what happens in chapter 4 and chapter 5, but essentially the people of God, Israel, go to battle with a a group of people that they're always fighting, the Philistines, and they feel really intimidated, so they think, you know, what worked for our ancestors was they had the ark. So if we bring the ark with us, surely we'll win. And they pull the ark out like it's a magic trick. They pull it out and say, all right, here we go. We got our ark. We're going to win the fight. And God says, no, it doesn't work that way. They lose the ark. They lose the battle. Phineas and Hophni, who were right in there with the ark, are killed. And the ark is taken away from the people of God. The ark represents the presence of God with his people. And they lost it. And not only that, someone survives the battle and runs back to Eli and say, this is what happened. It was horrible. And then Eli immediately, and it's very strange, but this is what happened. He falls over and breaks his neck immediately. I mean, this is the judgment of God that he does follow through on what he says. This prophecy that comes to the house of Eli for a family that has done devastating damage to the people who want to worship. God says enough. 
He persists in his promise to remove leaders that aren't going to lead people to him. And he is putting good leaders in place, preparing Samuel. Now, I think one of the things I want to do here is say that the good news in this passage is not just that this family is stopped from doing these horrible things that are happening. Because if I think of my own existence, my own life, I know that I am just as susceptible to sin as anybody else. Just as susceptible to temptation, even to taking, you know, we all take advantage of people in small ways. You have to think about that. But I think about Eli's question where he's saying, who will intercede for you if you do something against God? If you remember this question, he says, who will intercede for you? There's no one who can. If you keep going on this sin, he tells his sons, no one's going to be able to intercede for you. And that's not the case for us. Because that is Jesus Christ, the faithful priest, the faithful intercessor for us, who came for us, that in the midst of our sin, we would say, Lord, we have nothing to give. And yet he says, I have given everything for you because I have given you myself. Even Hebrews, Hebrews 4 tells us about how Jesus takes on this mantle of the priest, the great high priest, our high priest. Says this in Hebrews 4, 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the son of God, Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Approach the throne of grace to receive mercy today. You know, it's very easy for us to look at all these different elements in this passage and think, you know, wow, like that's bad. My my life's not as bad as that. Or you might even discount yourself. You say, no, Pastor Chris, you don't know what I've done. They say to God it matters, and at the same time it doesn't matter. Because what he says to you today is that Jesus came, he lived, he died for you. He knows your sufferings, he knows your temptation, he knows your failure. And instead of saying this discounted you, or instead of saying, oh, by the way, this judgment that all these these men just experienced, that's not for you. I sent my son to intercede for you. So instead of you shying away in fear from me, that you step forward boldly to receive the grace I want for you to have today. I want you to receive grace today for your time of need. That's how this functions when you look at the Old Testament and you think, wow, how is this looking? It's all to be understood through the lens of Jesus, through the lens of what he's accomplished. And you see how all these different people are anticipating a changed reality of the gospel and the good news. Even Samuel himself, who's who's not perfect, but he helps us anticipate a better prophet. Just like we see the failures of Eli, it helps us anticipate the one true faithful priest that is to come. That Jesus has interceded for us to transform our worship this morning. And we had such a wonderful time of worship this morning already. Full voices proclaiming the blessing of God. And I found myself standing there and thinking, this is what we're supposed to do today. But if we take God off the center, off the focus for our worship, it might as well be pulling out the meat before it burns. It might as well be taking advantage of people around our lives. It might as well be if we don't keep God at the focus and at the center. And so I think how to apply the good news that Jesus gives us today is this. That if you're going to worship God with all of yourselves, your heart, mind, and soul, 
you have to do the three things we talked about. You have to reject sin. It's this self-interest. It's this pride. Sin has a way in each of us to do something unique that challenges and distorts and twists who we are. You have to do it. You have to clear out the filth. I think about me just like shoving dirt out of my garage yesterday. You have to get the filth out. Because if you let it make a home there, if you let it continue to be part of your life, your life, you will never fully experience the grace and fullness of God that he wants for you. It will always be in the way. It always hinders. It devastates and pervades everything it touches. You have to reject sin. And that's through confession. That's through discipline. That's through accountability. But it ha- you have to get it out. Get the filth out. The next thing you have to do if you want to really worship with God with all your heart, mind, and soul, it is to nurture a life of praise from within you. It's things like actually drawing near to God in mercy and humbleness and contriteness like Hannah does. It's actually saying things about who God is. It's also embracing that quiet life. It's not a big, boisterous, loud life. If you want to cultivate a life of praise, it's about just living quietly and humbly and present to God. It's even how you actually share your faith and experience God through generosity. I think, I was thinking about how all the offerings were twisted in this passage in First, Sam, in First Samuel. And I just think that our offerings and our generosity to the church and to the community we're part of really matters. And we have a really bad example of how that's twisted with these two priests that mess this up. But we should actively seek to give of what God has given us back to him in generous and courageous ways because he's worthy. He's worthy of the praise. He's worthy of all the honor. And when we keep things for ourselves or we make them be what they want, we want them to be for ourselves, we, take, we usurp ourselves at the center of it all. The ultimate example of giving is Jesus himself who gives himself up for us. And that's what he invites us to do. And the last thing, and I'm going to invite our worship team to come up as we think about this last point. So it's rejecting sin, getting the filth out of your life. It is nurturing, you know, nurturing a life of praise from within. You know, it's things, you know, just embracing a way of discipline and generosity that's going to transform who you are as you behold Christ. But the last thing is to claim God's promises as your own. You know, it's very easy to take in lies in our minds and our hearts about who God is and who we are. And that's not what God wants to say. He actually wants us to hear, he wants us to hear that welcome to come and experience the mercy of God and come and experience the grace of God. And the fact is that he will never leave us nor forsake us. That true worship, if we trust it, is is to relate to God rightly through a word and deed, through personal and communal participation. True worship is actually saying, no, God is here. He's with you. He's with you when you go today. He's with you when you go through each day of the week that's coming up. And that in each day when you're tempted to doubt, when you're tempted to be, you know, push away and say, you know, I've had it today. I'm done, God. To claim, no, God is with me and he loves me. I don't need to take the wounding and, and brokenness that I just experienced last week or this past work day. Instead, I'm going to take this that God loves me and he sees me and he wants me to boldly approach his throne of grace and receive his mercy. So that's how I'm going to pray this morning because I think we all need it. Is I'm going to invite us to receive God's mercy. So please go to the Lord with me in prayer. And, um, and if you can, open your heart to this because if you are closed off, 
then you might miss receiving what God has for you. So Lord, I, I do pray that we would open our hearts today to you. Lord, all of us are in need of your mercy and of your grace. And so, Lord, I just pray you would help us that there are things that we discount, our, we, there's ways that we discount our grace ourselves from your gift. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would not allow that to happen in our hearts. I pray, Lord, that instead you would transform this moment as a time of healing and of receiving. And Lord, you're a good judge and we trust you in that. But Lord, I pray you would help us to not only feel drawn by your spirit to, to do the good that you call us to, but that you would lead us to worship through our own voice, through our own talents, through our own gifts. But Lord, I just pray your will would be done in our lives and our hearts. I thank you for your good news. I thank you for a gospel filled with mercy and love and joy. And Lord, I pray that we are all reminded of that today. Thank you. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.